This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to the Father's Edition of the Talk of Fame Network, which means it must be mid-June. Just we're closing in on the summer. Where does spring go? Hey, Ron, you're a father. So am I. What's the best thing about being a dad? Uh, I think it's watching your kids turn into the kind of people that you'd be proud of. And the worst? Uh, watching them grow up beyond the age of 11. I love those years <laughs> when they thought you actually knew what you were doing. It's great. Yeah. Then they turn 12. Wait till you, your son turns 13. I've got a 13-year-old daughter. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, Gooseman, I know you don't have kids, but, but you were part of a large family growing up in Detroit. Uh, what's your best Father's Day memory? Oh, my brother and I attending a Detroit Tigers doubleheader with my dad on Father's Day. Now, you guys remember when baseball actually scheduled doubleheaders? Yeah, yeah. right. Baseball, baseball is my dad's favorite sport. He even went to spring training one year with the New York baseball giants. So. You remember who was pitching, Goose? Carl Hubble. So I have great baseball memories associated with my dad. Um, bigger deal around your house, because Father's Day or Mother's Day? Mother's Day, still. Always yeah. still. Yeah. Well, today's a big deal around here because we have Hall of Famer Joe Green in the house. We also have Washington head coach Jay Gruden, as well as Hall of Fame voter John Zarneski to talk about the best Rams, Los Angeles or St. Louis, not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Goose, Ike Bruce, Eddie Metter, who do you think? You guys know me. I'll go with Metter. All-decade safety in the 1960s, who to this day still holds the franchise records for interceptions and block kicks. That's a long time ago. And to this day has never been discussed. Sad. Ron, where where are you going, Ron? Well, that's two good ones, but I'll give you two others. Uh, Dennis Harrah and Henry Ellard. Look at their numbers. Harrah went to six Pro Bowls on a line uh, we started on for 12 years, led the NFL in rushing twice, yards once, points, went to the Super Bowl. And Henry Ellard's numbers, uh, simply amazing for his time, and they speak for themselves. Yeah, they do, and we've had him on the show. He's a great guest. Um, yes. Let me ask the two of you, because uh, you're involved with the senior committee, so you know about uh, Henry Ellard. Henry Ellard or Ike Bruce, where would you go first, if they were both were in the same group, if they were both in the same group? Goose? Wow. I'd probably go with Bruce because he won a title. Okay. But I, I'm a big fan of Ellard. Ronnie? I would go with Ellard. You know, when he retired, he was right near the top uh, in a lot of categories, and, and people seem to have forgotten him. And you know, you guys both know, I believe in the pecking order, and uh, yep. it fits. Well, we have a lot to get to today, including another wide receiver, our favorite lightning rod, Debbie Terrell Owens, when we continue. But first, we've got to go to commercial. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get started, uh, congratulations to Hall of Fame voter and friend of the show, Shereen Williams, for winning this year's McCann Award, which is given by the Pro Football Writers Association to that reporter who has made a long and distinguished contribution to pro football through his or her coverage. And Shereen is certainly deserving. I mean, she's not just this year's winner, Ron. She's the first ever woman to win it. Yeah. She will now find her name in the Pro Football Hall of Fame alongside Rick Goslin. That's right. She's the uh, uh, female Kit Carson, trailblazer. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, congrats. Kitty Carson, I guess we'd have to call her. <laughs> There's no crying in football. Anyway, um, hey, uh, uh, anyway, congratulations to Shireen. Certainly deserving. Um, looking at the newswire this week, I saw where uh, the Giants' Eli Manning had something to say about what former teammate Sean O'Hara and Justin Tuck said recently. And what they said was that they felt sorry that Eli had his, quote, unquote, best years wasted on bad teams. Now, Eli didn't agree. I wouldn't expect him to, saying he has some peak years left. But I've got to agree with O'Hara and Tuck guys. I mean, at 37, I, I think Eli is nearing the finish line. And, and, and Ron, not like Gronkowski at the Belmont. Right, right. Well, maybe my peak, like P-E-E-K, like I'm peaking <laughs> at the end, you know. Uh, uh, look, I mean, you know, Brady and Breeze have proven the, that these are different times and older quarterbacks aren't getting hit the way they used to, so they can last a lot yep. longer. And he's, uh, Eli's a guy who's managed to stay incredibly uh, injury-free, for the most part. Uh, and he's got those Super Bowl rings to his credit, so I wouldn't be lamenting his career too, too much. Yeah, three of the last four Super Bowl champions had quarterbacks 37 years of age or older, so age alone isn't an obstacle. But supporting cast is. Last season, the Giants couldn't block, and they couldn't tackle. Right. Rome wasn't built in a day, and the Giants certainly haven't been rebuilt in an offseason. Ron, I wonder if Peak was P-I-Q-U-E. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, every time he looks at, what's his name? Odell Beckham, he's very Peak. <laughs> Hey, Gooseman, quick here. Um, let's say Eli's career ends tomorrow. He's in the Hall of Fame conversation because of what you guys said, those two Super Bowl wins. Would he make it? Well, there's a little more to his resume than that. I mean, he ranks sixth all-time in passing yards, eighth in touchdown passes. There's a lot of Hall of Famers stacked behind him. So it wasn't like he was an accidental champion. And to his credit, Eli made the plays to win the biggest games of his life. And that's what a Hall of, Maker, Hall of Famer does. He embraces the moment. And in both cases, he engineered a huge Super Bowl upset. So I say he's better than a 50-50 chance to join his brother in Canton. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't done the sufficient research uh, to make the, a real decision, which I think all of us uh, voters are obligated to do. But certainly he's in the, any conversation that you have. As Goose just pointed out, his career production uh, exceeds a lot of uh, a lot of guys. Uh, now, Jim Plunkett's got two rings, too, but he didn't have anywhere near the production that uh, Manning has had. And let's be honest about it. It ain't going to hurt him that he played in New York. Yeah, well, guaranteed if he did make it, guys, he'd show up. Uh, not so, of course, with Terrell Owens, who made news last week by saying he's not going to show up for his own induction at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, forget that that's, at least in my opinion, an insult to the Hall. It's an insult to those who are in, too. And, Ron, you know, I had a long conversation about this, and I, I understand you when you say, you know, it's almost sad that the guy's like a moth to a flame and does exactly the wrong thing when everything else around him is going well. But why in the world would he or any of his handlers or sycophants, why would they think this is a good idea, especially after he spent the past two and a half years complaining that he wasn't in the Hall? Well, uh, his sycophants think it's a good idea because T.O. thinks it's a good idea. Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, do you have any cash, sir? Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just how it is. But it's hard to say uh, you know, what he's uh, thinking or, or what anyone who might actually advise him is thinking. Uh, but he always, to me, as, as we talked about uh, privately, Clark seemed to be uh, a sad character. I always felt more sorry for him than angry at him. Uh, it just appears to me like he's a guy who isn't comfortable and everything's going well. Uh, he always needs an enemy to claim or a slight to, to uh, get his back up on. You know, it just seems like the thing that makes him most uncomfortable, yep. which is really sad, is when he's comfortable. Well, I got to tell you, Ronnie, the, the, the best tweet last week was the one you sent out that afternoon when he announced that. What was that? Well, uh, the one I think you're thinking about, because I went in a little bit of a Trumpian tweet storm there. Uh, <laughs> but I said, you know, he was on. Uh, he just was put on the greatest team ever created, and he's still a lousy teammate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, he can't help himself. Uh, uh, he can't help. Because the Hall is as much about all the other men in there. That's it's right. Not That's about right. Y- all about you. It's partially about you, but it's about being in there with all these tremendous 
players, the greatest players in the history of the game. There's only a little over 300 of them out of you know 40,000 guys that have played. Yeah. And and well, why would you not want to be, forget everything else, why would you not want to be with them? I, I don't know. Um, but, Goose, I, I, I want to ask you, and put this into context for me, if you will, is there anything in the baseball hall, because I know you're a voter, um, and, and so is Ron, but uh, anything comparable to or any hall um, of fame uh, to this? And, and how would you proceed when he's to be introduced to his own in- induction or at the Gold Jacket dinner uh, a couple of nights before? There's no, there's no, nothing that qualifies like this. But if, if I was a hall, I'd ignore him in the program. Devote the night, the speeches, the ceremony, the unveiling of the bus to those who are mm-hmm. in attendance. Mail him his bust and his jacket. He chose not to participate, so Hall should accommodate his wish and eliminate him from the program. <laughs> well, Goose, I, I've heard people say it's his right not to participate, and, and, and it is. But because it's your right doesn't mean it's what you do. I mean, it's your right to appear in a T-shirt and shorts to see the Queen, too. But you don't do it. And it's say, you know, Pete Carroll's right. It's called pass at the one of the Super Bowl when you have Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, too. But that doesn't mean you do that either. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm tired of hearing about rights. How about responsibility? Yeah, like Ron said, the Hall is bigger than any one player. It's bigger than Jim Brown. It's bigger than John Unitas. bigger than Joe Green. But apparently it's not bigger than Terrell Owens. This is an honor and a moment that should be accepted with dignity and humility Neither applies to Owens. Frankly, I don't care if he shows or if he doesn't. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and Ron, I, I know what you've told us in the past, and I agree, agree 100%, is uh, exactly what we said in the show the past two or three years. The impact that Owens had on voters and now fans is exactly the impact he had on teams. He polarizes them, which is why he went from team to team to team to team. Sure, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I'm not so sure he's polarized the, the new team he's on because uh, I think uh, most of the ones, at least that I spoke with, uh, don't like or understand what he's doing, and and yeah. many of them didn't like the fact that, that he got voted in, in the first place. Yeah, uh, right. They see this as the greatest fraternity in sports, and to not show up when you're selected disrespects the uh, the oldest of those Hall of Famers, the great. Uh, Gino Marchetti, for example, who fought at the Battle of Bulls when he was 18 years old, so that Terrell Owens has the right to sit on his ass someplace else. You know, I mean, what about those guys? Forget about it, the rest of it. You know, what about those guys? All rise. Here comes the judge. Well, either Aaron Judge just hit another dinger, or guys, that's my turn to state a case. And I see that Robert Harris Jr., our producer, is pointing at me. So I guess I will tell you about former coach Chuck Knox, who was the subject of this week's State Your Case on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And I want to make sure you guys understand this. This isn't a sympathy vote. Chuck Knox, of course, died last month. But it is a suggestion to hear the case of a man who, in his first 16 years of coaching, 11 times went to the playoffs and four times went to conference championship games. It's also a suggestion to hear the case of a guy who, in his first five seasons with the L.A. Rams, turned the club into a five-time division champion with a combined record. Of 54, 11, and 1 before leaving in a dispute with the owner. It's also a suggestion to hear the case of a guy who turned a losing Buffalo franchise into a 1981 playoff team before, <laughs> stop it for this, before leaving after a dispute with the owner. And it's a suggestion to hear the case of a guy who then went to Seattle, an expansion franchise that never reached the playoffs, and put them into the postseason four of his first six years there. In short, uh, Chuck Knox knew how to win, and you know it, I know it. That's one reason he was a three-time winner of the NFL Coach of the Year Award. But what he didn't know how to do was get to the Super Bowl. And like Marty Schottenheimer, who we've uh, discussed here on the show, not only uh, does that cripple any chances he has of getting his case head, but heard, but it probably bears them. And that's because, as you guys know, we measure our head coaches like we do our quarterbacks by rings, and Chuck Knox had none. 
He was 7-11 in the playoffs. And worse, he went out with a whimper with only one winning season in his last six years as a head coach. But he did have 187 career victories before exiting or 13 shy of Marty Schottenheimer and a record for turning around franchises, three of them, in fact, in a heartbeat. And that should count for something. It should give Chuck Knox the audience he deserves in front of Hall of Fame voters. Clark, Knox, or Coriel? Uh, oh, my God. Um, I, I probably lean to Don because he didn't get to um, he didn't get to Super Bowls either. He got to only I think one or two um, conference championship games. Um, but he he was an innovator. I, I, I the reason I hesitated goes because I think it's based solely on coaching. Yeah, I'd say Knox, but but Coriel to me was an innovator. As you said, you asked something last week about you know would somebody be in a contributor category? If there were a contributor category, Coriel on the pure coaching. Yeah, probably Chuck. Real quick question, Clark. Don't you think a guy who dated Angie Dixon ought to be in some kind of Hall of Fame? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's in yours and mine. Absolutely. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, that's going to do it, but don't go anywhere soon. Very soon, we're going to hear from Washington head coach Jay Gruden. And I can't wait for the Gooseman to ask, why'd you let a Spartan quarterback go? Hey, it happens, Goose. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. We touched on this in the last segment, and I want to expand on it in this segment. For two years, we heard how strongly Terrell Owens believed he belonged in camp, that he was being denied his rightful place by the writers in the, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Then he gets voted the honor, and now he doesn't want any part of Ken. He's not going to show up for his own induction ceremony. I'd have more respect for Owens if he flat rejected the honor. Ron, do you think we could come up with a receiver or two or even three who is not currently in the Hall of Fame but would cherish the honor and show up in Canton for induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Who would you substitute for Owens this August? Well, Gooseman, Cliff Branch would show up. And he'd get there fast. He was he was one of the most explosive deep threats in NFL history, once averaging 24.2 yards a catch in a season. He had only 46 catches that year, which is about a month's worth in today's game of nonviolent pitch and catch, but he lugged them for 1,111 yards. He wasn't just fast, he was world-class fast. He led the NFL in receiving touchdowns twice in a three-year span. He was an All-Pro four times. He started on three Super Bowl champions. Uh, and uh, somehow he's out, and Lynn Swan is in despite having more catches for more yards and more touchdowns and averaging 17.3 a catch to Swan's 16.3. He played in an era where teams ran the ball twice as often as they threw it, but when they threw it to Cliff Branch, he made up for lost time and headed to Canton. Ron, I guarantee it, Drew Pearson would show up (laughs) his induction. In the eight decades since 1930, there have been 16 wide receivers selected first team all decade. And they're the greats of the great. Don Hudson, Crazy Legs Hirsch, Lance Hallworth, Jerry Rice, Randy Moss. Drew Pearson is the only one of the 16 first-team all-decade receivers not enshrined in Canton. He's been eligible now for 30 years and has never once been discussed as a finalist. T.O. was never a first-team all-decade wide receiver, and he was a finalist three times. And he's upset that he had to wait three years to get in. Michael Irvin waited three years. So did Marvin Harrison. Irvin won three Super Bowls with the Cowboys. Owens never won a Super Bowl. Harrison led the NFL in receiving twice. Owens never led the league in receiving. 
Neither Irvin nor Harrison was insulted by the process. They were elated to be elected and both showed up for their induction. Pearson would, too. Let me tell you another guy who would show up. Sterling Sharp would show up with his brother. That's a lot of noise. <laughs> if domination of your era is one of the Hall of Fame's requirements, there's only one wide receiver who was more dominant between 1988 and 1994 than Sterling Sharp, and that was Jerry Rice, who many people think is the greatest receiver of all time. Despite Rice's great during those years, Sharp led the NFL in receptions three times. He led in touchdown receptions twice and is one of only seven players in NFL history to win receiving's triple crown by leading the NFL in receptions, yards, and receiving touchdowns in the same season. Joining Don Hudson, Elroy Hirsch, Pete Pios, Ray Berry, Steve Smith, and Rice. In the seven years before his neck injury forced him to retire, Sterling Sharp's 595 receptions were second only to Jerry Rice. His 65 receiving touchdowns during that time were second only to Jerry Rice. And his 8,134 yards were third only to Jerry Rice and Henry Ellett. If the Hall of Fame is about dominance, it's impossible to argue that Sterling Sharp wasn't anything but, and he would show up. Ron, I got another guy who'd show up, Otis Taylor. He and Charlie Taylor were the two receivers in the 1960s that changed how pro football looked at wideouts. Both were tight end size with wide receiver speed. The game was more physical on the flank then, with defenders mugging receivers every step of their routes. The two tailors were just as physical with cornerbacks as the corners were with them. They were the forerunners of size on the flank, paving the way for the big wideouts, such as Randy Moss and Terrell Owens. Charlie Taylor played in the NFL and has been enshrined in Canton. Otis Taylor played in the AFL, and has never been discussed as a finalist. You might remember he caught that 46-yard touchdown pass against the Minnesota Vikings that broke open the fourth Super Bowl for his Chiefs. In 1971, after the two leagues merged, Taylor was the only receiver in the 2016 league to post a 1,000-yard season. Otis Taylor has been waiting 38 years to have his Hall of Fame candidacy considered and discussed. I guarantee you, he'd show up for his induction. So too would Stanley Morgan. The forward pass was invented to move the ball forward fast, and few receivers ever did that more effectively than Morgan. In the 70s and 80s, throwing the football was not an extended handoff like it is today. It was throwing the bomb while people beat you all the way down the field. Despite that, there were a few bombardiers more dangerous than Stanley Morgan. In his first six years in the NFL, he averaged 22.6 yards per catch, and each of those seasons averaged 20.9 yards per catch or more. No receiver has come close to duplicating that. In Jerry Rice's first six years, he averaged 17.6 yards a catch. In James Lofson's best six years, he averaged 18.9. Both are Hall of Famers. Randy Moss's best seasonal average was 19, and Marvin Harrison's was 14.5. They're Hall of Famers. When Stanley Morgan retired after 13 seasons, he had 557 catches for 10,716 yards, an average of 19.2 yards per catch. Only two Hall of Fame receivers, Paul Warfield and Bob Hayes, average more. He is the only player in NFL history with 500 or more catches to average over 19 yards per reception. You always talk about the quality of the catch. 19.2 yards per catch, pretty good quality, don't you think, Goose? Not bad. I'll tell you another guy who would show up. The late Charlie Hennigan would have showed up for his induction. Like Otis Taylor, he was penalized for playing in the AFL. And the AFL was the passing league. The NFL was the running league, yet they penalized these receivers. Hennigan set records it took decades to break. In 1961, he caught 100 passes 
uh, excuse me, 100 yards in passes in 10 of Houston's 14 games. That record stood for 34 years before Michael Irvin posted 11 100-yard games in a 16-game season in 1965. Hennigan caught 101 passes in a 14-game season in 1964. That record stood for 20 years before Art Monk caught 106 passes in a 16-game season in 1984. Both Irvin and Monk are now in the Hall of Fame. Hannigan has been eligible now for 47 years and has never been discussed as a finalist. He'd have shown up for his induction. Another guy who would have shown up is Billy Houghton. All you need to know about Billy Houghton is when he retired in 1963, he was the NFL's all-time leading receiver in receptions and yards, eclipsing, eclipsing a record set by Don Hudson, who many consider as one of the three best receivers in history. If someone eclipsed his, Don Hudson's record, he's deserving of more than being a football footnote. As a rookie in Green Bay in 1952, Billy Houghton averaged a league best, had a league best 1,231 yards and a staggering 102.6 yards per game. He scored 13 touchdowns, a rookie mark that lasted until 1965, and a rookie touchdown reception record that stood until 1998. Eleven times in NFL history, receivers have produced 1,000 or more yards in a 12-game season. Billy Houghton did it twice. He was among the league's top five receivers four times. He was among the top ten eight times. He went to four Pro Bowls. He was twice was chosen first-team All-Pro. He scored 43 touchdowns in 80 games with one of the lousiest teams ever, the old Green Bay Packers. Today, that would translate to 8.6 scores per season. He had 5,581 yards, too, which would average 1,116.2 yards over a 16-game season today. When he retired, he not only led the league in catches and yards, but his 61 touchdowns left him only four shy of future Hall of Famers Michael Irvin, Bobby Mitchell, and Charlie Joyner. Would Billy Howden show up if he was inducted? He was wondering why nobody called. I'll give you another guy. The late Billy Wilson would have showed up for his induction. He went to six Pro Bowls in the 1950s with the San Francisco 49ers. That's as many Pro Bowls as Owens went to. And Wilson was playing on a running team. He played with the million-dollar backfield, Y.A. Tittle, Hugh McElhenney, John Henry Johnson, and Joe the Jet Perry. They're all in the Hall of Fame. Billy Wilson can't get discussed. He led the NFL receiving three times. That's three more receiving crowns than Owens. He's been eligible for the Hall now for 53 years, and he's never been discussed. Billy Wilson would have shown up for his induction. You know I love Billy Wilson, don't you? That's why you did that. Wait, didn't you cover him? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I threw footballs to him back in high school. Uh, well, here's another guy. How about uh, Harold Carmichael? Second team all-decade selection. He, when he retired, he had 590 catches for nearly 9,000 yards. He averaged over 15 yards a catch. He scored... Uh, 79 touchdowns in an era when they were running the ball most of the time. He had a thousand yard, uh, one, two, three thousand yard receiving seasons uh, in, in an era in the 70s when you know Goose they were handing the ball off two thirds of the time. You think he wouldn't show up for his induction? He'd be there a week early. You look at Heinz Ward and Isaac Ruth. Both have a thousand career catches, and, and and both have been in the room, or Bruce has been in the room, and their candidacies have stalled. I mean, a thousand career catches. And you can't get in. Um, Torrey Holt, Reggie Wayne, guys that were uh, all-decade type players on championship teams, contributors on uh, on teams that won titles, put up the stats, went to Pro Bowls, can't get in, can't get discussed. And yet you got a guy here that's not going to show up for his induction. I mean, there are, 
there are a lot of wide receivers that would like to trade places with T.O. today. If you told any one of those receivers that we just discussed, Goose, you're going to have to wait three more years, and then you're going to go in the Hall of Fame. Not a one of them would be crying the blues. They'd be getting their travel arrangements ready for four years from now. Be happy to be there. That's the thing that, that is utterly amazing to me. It's, look, I understand uh, any guy. I mean, these guys, especially today, they all think the first ballot Hall of Famers. Uh, so you know, a little disappointment, okay. Maybe that's justified. Maybe it isn't, but okay, human nature. Uh, but you waited three years to get in. We're talking about some of the greatest receivers and the most productive receivers in history. And they're still waiting 25, 30, 35, 40, 45 years. And you don't hear a peep from them. I mean, he needs, uh, T.O. needs some perspective. Uh, you should listen to the show. Joe Namath waited 30 years. Your guy Mike Haynes waited 30 years. Herb Adderley, Joe Schmidt waited three years. I mean, that's wrong. Okay, guys, Mike Haynes waited three years, Goose. Yes, and if he was covering T.O., T.O. would never get in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Rod. <laughs> Time for a break. Next up, we'll visit with Washington Redskins coach Jay Groove. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. Our first guest, Jay Gruden, enters his fifth season as head coach of the Washington Redskins. He looking, he's looking for his first championship in the NFL to go along with the six he won in the Arena League as first a quarterback, then a head coach. Jay, the younger brother of John Gruden, took the Redskins to the playoffs as wild card in his second season as coach in 2015 and has posted a 24-23-1 record over the last three years. Jay Gruden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jay, the, the Super Bowl champion now resides in the NFC East. How much does that heighten the challenge of coaching and succeeding in the East? I'll tell you what, there's always a lot of pressure in NFC East. You know, there's great history, obviously, uh, with our organization, obviously the Cowboys, Giants, and Eagles, and uh, pressure is packed every time we step on the field with those guys. And uh, the Eagles winning the NFL for the uh, Super Bowl last year just puts added pressure on us to try to do the same thing. But uh, it's always a great division to be in and be a part of, and it's a blast to coach in it. Um. Jay, the uh, the Cowboys drafted Ezekiel Elliott with a first-round pick in 2015. He won the rushing title. The Eagles traded for uh, Jay uh, Ajayi last season. The Giants used the second overall pick, of course, in the spring to take uh, Penn State All-American Saquon Barkley. You drafted LFU's Darius, i got to pronounce it right, I hope, Guis in the second round. Uh, is the NFL arms race evolving into a, more of a tank attack? Are we going back to the running game that, that uh, I used to see when I started out as a writer? Yeah, NFC, Darius Geis, yes. Uh, you could probably say that. You know, I think, uh, you know, history says that you got to be able to run the ball in the NFC, so you got to be able to stop the run. And obviously the Cowboys drafting Elliott and uh, the Eagles getting the running backs that they have with JHI. Um, and then obviously with uh, Saquon going to the Giants, uh, I think everybody knows the recipe for success in the NFL is being able to have a balanced attack. You know, the Giants have Odell Beckham, they can throw the ball too. And Cowboys have a litany of weapons, as do the Eagles, uh, as do we, with Jameson Crowder and Jordan Reed and Josh Doxson, now Paul Richardson. Uh, but it's very important to be able to run the ball, stop the run. We addressed the running game with uh, Adam Darius. And we also addressed stop and run, adding Deron Payne in the first round to go 
along with uh, Jonathan Allen. Jay, when you were a quarterback in the original league, how many times did you call runs? <laughs> runs, not many. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I got hit the play before, I needed a break. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, Jay, it just struck me that, that the running game seemed to be disappearing just not that many years ago. It looked like running backs would suddenly become obsolete. Is, is the game sort of reversing I- itself now because of the way defenses are playing with so many defensive backs? Well, I don't know. I think uh, there's extens- There's more extensions of the running game now than there used to be. With all these bubble screens and RPOs, you know, a lot of teams run these quick passes that they didn't have in the league before. And uh, they're easy completions. You get the ball out to your playmakers in space and let them do some work. Uh, so I think those are running plays in my mind when you throw a screen or a bubble screen or something like that. They should count as runs. But uh, you still, at the end of the day, you're going to have some short yard situations. you got some four-minute drills. You want to be balanced so you can open up the play-action pass in your shot plays. And the running game plays a big part that. Jay, the Redskins won those 24 games over the last three years with Kirk Cousins at quarterback. Now he's gone and Alex Smith is in. How does the offense in general and the quarterback, quarterback position in particular change with the switch from Cousins to Smith? I don't know if it changes a whole lot. I think we're going to try to implement some uh, concepts that Alex is comfortable with, but uh, we're going to try to also uh, show him what's gone well around here while also adjusting to his play style. You know, Alex can do a little bit more things uh, with his mobility factor that Kirk maybe couldn't have done. Um, so we'll try to add some more of those type of plays, so to speak, to get him out of the pocket a little bit more maybe, some RPOs, so to speak, and uh, try to fit our offense to what he does, but also uh, letting Alex come in here and, and, and uh, learn what we do what we've had success with around here, uh, spreading the ball around to our weapons. Now, you won, I believe, four Arena Football League championships as a quarterback, and in 2012 you were voted the fourth greatest player in Arena League history. And I was wondering uh, how your days there as a player and coach uh, influenced your coaching philosophy uh, here with the Redskins. Well, I think you, anytime you're a player coach in any league, uh, you, you want to be aggressive and you want to attack situationally and have uh, great awareness of what's going on in the game. Uh, you still have to make calls and uh, perform in crunch time situations, third down, red zone, uh, fourth down sometimes. You have to know the clock, uh, two-minute drill, four-minute drill, whatever it might be. All those are great learning experiences no matter what league you're in, and it helps develop you as a person. Also, learning to get the most out of the people around you, whether you're a quarterback or a coach, you still have to coach your guys up and uh, get the most out of them on game day. How much fun was it playing in the Arena League? Oh, it was a blast. I had a great time. You know, I'd probably still be in it if it didn't fold. You know, I was coaching <laughs> my brother for seven years, and I was also playing and coaching the Arena League for seven years. Those seven years, and I had a great time. I was uh, the man uh, in the Arena League, and then I went to, to the Buccaneers and just kind of was like a slappy over there. So I uh, got to learn a lot of ball, uh, but also got to have a lot of fun in the Arena League. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about those seven seasons with your brother, John. You were in a professor assistant with the Buccaneers. You helped to win that uh, NFL title in 2002. How has John influenced you as both an offensive coach and as a head coach? He's had a great influence on my career. You know, I, I uh, was able to, like I said, play arena ball, coach arena ball, but also go down there and be a fly in the wall and learn. And then uh, as I got more involved uh, with the Buccaneers my first, second, third year, I was able to do a little bit more and more and more. Uh, and it really, and then the year that we got fired in Tampa Bay, we spent 
uh, months and months just getting on a chalkboard and drawing plays up and studying the game and uh, gave me a great opportunity to really study the game uh, from an X's and O's standpoint and forced me to learn pass protections and run concepts and how to block the runs. Uh, everything I do and have learned is from John. I've branched off and learned some other great people like Marvin Lewis and Kenny Zampezi and uh, some other coaches in Cincinnati and then adding some coaches here with Kevin O'Connell and Matt Cavanaugh and Bill Callahan and uh, kind of evolved that away. But uh, really the, the, the bread and butter of my offense comes through uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I, I always say I have the, the Bible, the coaching playbook Bible, my 2008 uh, playbook from the Buccaneers. I still re- refer to that every now and then. <laughs> Uh, when the Redskins used their first two picks of the 2017 draft on defensive front seven players from Alabama, then you used your first pick in the 18 draft on another defensive lineman from Alabama, uh, and you grabbed another Crimson Tide defender later in the draft. The Redskins, uh, I think you were 21st in the NFL in defense last season. What do you like about Alabama players in particular, other than the fact that they're good? And, and is the plan to rebuild the defense using kind of the Saban blueprint? Well, what we like about these guys, number one, they're the best players available on our board. It just so happens they went to Alabama. But uh, when you take a guy from Alabama, you know they're going to be well coached. That's for sure. They're going to be playing in big games. They're five-star recruits. They're productive. Uh, they can handle aggressive coaching. They play multiple fronts and coverages on the back end uh, at Alabama. They're not just playing two coverages. They're, they're moving around. Deron Payne, who we drafted in the first round this year, he played nose. He played three. He played a little bit of everything. They had different fire zones. He was in different gaps. You know, uh, Ryan Anderson, outside backer, same thing. He was dropping in coverage. He was rushing the passer. Jonathan Allen, same thing. Uh, Sean Dion Hamilton, who we got in the, uh, later on in the draft at linebacker. He's played behind these guys and played in big games and handled a lot of different things with communication, changing coverages and uh, things that he's supposed to do on defense and still being accountable. And, and, and like I said before, they are all been productive. They've uh, been very good and uh, they can handle great coaching. How, how do you feel about your depth? The Eagles kind of last year showed that uh, depth go a long way on defense. How are you on uh, the depth of the Redskins defense? Well, we had to find out rather quickly last year, you know, with our depth. We had so many injuries to a lot of people. You know, I know the Eagles did also, but I don't think anybody can compare what we had offensively. We had 31 or 30 different line combinations up front on offense. You know, we lost Chris Thompson. We lost Rob Kelly, our starting two running backs. You know, Jonathan Allen missed a bunch of time. Uh, Zach Brown missed a bunch of time at middle linebacker. Uh, we, we had our share of injuries. Uh, Monte Nicholson, our starting safety, went down for a long time. So uh, Jordan Reed, obviously. Obviously, went down for a long time. So our first four tackles were out. Uh, so it was, it was very difficult. But the positive is a lot of guys got to play. Young guys got to play a lot of significant minutes. You know, Josh Harvey Clemens, at linebacker. You know, we had four different offensive uh, tackles starting uh, for us, uh, provide some depth. So now that everybody's coming back healthy, we do have depth, and that has been addressed to go along with the draft and the free agents that we got uh, this offseason. You know, with all the injuries you had in the offensive line last year, you're really lucky to have Bill Kalen. I think he's the best in the league at the offensive line coach. I saw him here in Dallas, and of course he's the Redskins, uh, the Raiders. I think he's the best offensive line coach in football. Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, he's uh, he was forced to play some guys that we weren't expected to play uh, early. You know, heck, we had one guy come in on a Saturday, he started on Sunday. So uh, he does a great job of developing players, and uh, guys play hard for him, and he demands a lot of them. That's what I really like. You know, he holds them all accountable, and, and the guys love playing for him. They know that once they step on the field, they're going to be with him uh, the whole time, and he's going to be in there. He's going to be working them from start to finish of practice, and uh, does a great job developing the young kids. You know, that, that's a good point. You just uh, it made there, Jay, with, you know, you bring in a guy, on Saturday, start on Sunday. Uh, what exactly you do when you have a guy who comes in on Saturday and you got to put him in on Sunday? What, uh, yeah, how do you sort of 
throw him in there and deal with it. Yeah, fortunately, it was Ari Kwanjo. We took him off the Raven practice squad. He was with us in training camp, and uh, and uh, he was a, he still had some uh, knowledge of our system, which was good. Uh, but you know, it was tough. We uh, we adjusted pretty well. We adjusted the game plan accordingly, and uh, got a couple wins here and there. But uh, you know, it's tough to call plays. You know, it's tough to have your quarterback drop back seven steps when we don't know who's blocking in front of him. But uh, for the most part, guys did a good job. Uh, they competed. Uh, it would be nice to have a Pro Bowl left tackle like Trent Williams and Morgan Moses in there full time, and Brandon Sheriff. We missed a couple games, and our starting center Spencer Long went down, but it also helped develop Chase Rulier as our starting center now. Obviously, uh, Sean Laval missed a lot of time, but it helped develop somebody like Tyler Catalina uh, and some other guys up front. So now we do have some depth, and hopefully those guys will come back uh, full go here uh, when training camp starts. Jay, your, your 2016 first-round pick, Josh Doxson, barely played as a rookie and overcame a slow start in 2017 to lead the Redskins with six touchdowns. What's his upside, and has there been a chemistry in the past game developing this offseason between Smith and Doxson and, and Paul Richardson and that group? Yeah, they're getting there. You know, we still have ways to go. We're just trying to get everybody acclimated to the system and, and to each other. You know, it's new to Paul. Uh, he's doing some things he hadn't been asked to do. It's new to Alex, obviously, and Josh Doxson is starting to uh, cement his role, and here's a starting uh, flight or a uh, starting X over here in our offense. Josh has a great upside, without a doubt. He has uh, ex- explosion uh, when the ball's up in the air. And then the thing that you have to learn about Josh, he doesn't really have that down-the-field separating speed, uh, but he can separate uh, with his leaping ability and his big body and his big frame and his strong hands. So uh, sometimes he looks covered, but if you give him an opportunity ball, he won't be covered because he'll make a big play. And uh, those opportunities will come more, I think, this year. And I expect him to have a great year. And Paul uh, has a speed that uh, we might have lacked a little bit last year. You know, he can really, really run, take the top off, which will help, especially if Darius Geis gets going in the running game. Our play action should be outstanding, similar to when we had Deshaun. Uh, so I, I look for big things from uh, all three of those guys. One of the things that I spent a lot of time in Vegas uh, with boxing and some other things, uh, Jay, so I'm kind of wondering. Now, betting's legal everywhere, uh, apparently. Now, if we get to the end of the season and the Raiders or the Redskins are in the Super Bowl next February, could you tip us off and who sh- where we should put our money? Yeah, he's trying to get me in trouble already with the NFL. <laughs> well, it's legal now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, tell that to the league office. I can't be talking about gambling or any of that stuff. I know that I'm going to have confidence in our players and our team anytime, anywhere, any place. So uh, I would never say bet against us. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What did the Capitals win in the Stanley Cup? do for the town? Oh, man, I'll tell you what, they had their parade today. I almost called off practice to take the team down there to the parade, but uh, we had some work to get done here. I thought it was a little bit more important, but, you know, there's a buzz around here. There hasn't been in some time, and and it's been great for the fans. You know, it's been a long time coming for them, and uh, to see the excitement, see how they've gotten behind the Capitals has been amazing to watch, and hopefully uh, someday we can provide the same type of entertainment and exciting that the Caps have, but uh, definitely proud to be in this area and and be a part of that uh, championship season the Caps had. you a hockey fan? Did you go to any of the games? I went, No, I'm not a hockey fan, so to speak. I don't really watch. I never really got into hockey. I, I uh, was a, more of a baseball, basketball, football player growing up, but uh, went to a couple lightning games when I lived in Tampa, and then uh, went to one or two capital games here, but uh, you know, the time frame that they play, just haven't been able to get down there. But I uh, love watching them play in the playoffs, and, and happy that they won it all. Yeah. We'd like to thank Jay Gruden for stopping by to visit and wish him the best of luck this season trying to get the Redskins back to a Super Bowl for the first time since 1992. Thanks, Jay. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Next up, the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're wrapping up hour number one. It's time for the two-minute drill. Do I hear a whistle? 
Yes, I do. That means we're out of the two-minute drill. Ron, take it away. Is Le'Veon Bell worth a contract averaging the franchise tags $14.5 million after rushing for nearly 1,300 yards and leading all running backs and receptions with 85? He's a Spartan, Ron. Yes, he does. <laughs> well, for those people who think otherwise, why would they think not, including the Steelers? The key thing is legs slow the pass rush. If the handoff wasn't a threat, pass rushers would be teeing off on an immobile Ben Roethlisberger. Earl Thomas says he won't attend Seattle's mandatory minicamp until his contract is resolved. With a year to go in his contract, isn't it already resolved? Ron sounds like an aging player trying to get one last bite of that financial apple or someone trying to force a trade to the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> you love that. Which NFL quarterback is ready for a breakout season? Jimmy Garoppolo, Jimmy G, Patrick Mahomes, or Mitch Trubisky? I'll go with the quarterback with the best supporting cast. That would be Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. Whoa. Who would have expected that? Not the Jimmy G fans. Julian Edelman says he, quote, doesn't know what happened, unquote, with his positive PED test. What do you think happened, Goose? Sounds like a kid who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. When in doubt, plead ignorance. <laughs> or at least in the pill jar. Uh, do, the, do the Patriots now have... A departed Danny Amendola and Brandon Cook's envy? Not really. All these years it's been Tom Brady making the wide receivers, not the other way around. Ooh. There's a lot of talk back here, uh, Gooseman, of Gronk being traded. Some say it's fake news, or is it bad news for Gronk? Fake news. If the Patriots were to enter the 2018 season without Edelman, Amendola, Cooks, and Gronkowski, Tom Brady would probably retire and Clark Judge would <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr. says he prefers not to do, quote, teamwork during the Giants minicamp. Is that rehab-related or renegotiation-related? It's diva-related. Colin Kaepernick's attorney wants to depose President Trump about possible collusion with NFL owners. When does he have tried to be president? And the NFL owners hate Trump at this point. Now he's colluding with them? Try again. That's the end of, That's the end of our first tower. Stay tuned. We'll have Mean Joe Green as our guest in the second hour. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we're coming to you from our studios in Houston. But it could be Singapore this week, guys. That's because that's how our president, we're talking about President Donald Trump, has reached out to NFL players asking for suggestions of people they'd like to pardon. True story. But I guess after you've heard from Kim Kardashian, pro football players are probably next. So I thought, instead of hearing from them, you can hear from us on the people involved, past, present, or future with the NFL that we would like pardoned. And Gooseman... You've been on the Hall's board a lot longer than we have, over two decades, so let's start with you. Whom would you have pardoned? I'd like to pardon Tom Flores and George Seifert for a couple of bad coaching decisions, both for multiple Super Bowl winners, for Bay Area teams on a Hall of Fame track, but Flores moved to Seattle and Seifert moved to Carolina, where both failed miserably in the next head coaching stops. Those losing stints are the largest obstacles standing in the way of their Hall of Fame candidacies. Ronnie? 
For me, it's Jack Tatum. Say what you will or may about uh, Tatum, but the, the hit he put on Daryl Stingley, who became a, a friend of mine in his later years, was nothing that a lot of defensive backs of that era would not have done. It's, uh, it's always been held against him that he did it, and it's been held against him that he didn't uh, visit Stingley, although the truth of the matter is Stingley's family prevented him from doing so. I, uh, I think uh, he needs a pardon. Well, I'm going with Seattle coach Pete Carroll because he could use some friends these days. <laughs> I would like to see him pardon for the worst call in Super Bowl history, whether it was his or then the offense coordinator, Daryl Bevels. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But for that lame brain idea in Super Bowl 49 where he decided to throw the ball at the New England one. What? At the end of the game? What? Instead of giving it to Marshawn Lynch. What? I think he's still paying the price for that decision. You know what? He should, Goose. Clark, I'm going to pardon Tom Bratz, the GM of the Green Bay Packers, 1989 for drafting Tony Mandridge. Four of the first five picks in the 89 draft game. Hall of Famers, Troy Aikman, Barry Sanders, Derek Thompson, Deion Sanders. Brats could have had Thomas or either Sanders, but instead took the incredible, incredible shrinking man, Madrich, with a second overall pick. But it sure looked like a good pick at the time. Clark, where do you go to school? Where did Mandarich go to school? Forget. Ah, Michigan State. Where's that, Where's that span? Where's the band coming? No hey, Ron, I could use some brats right now. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be good, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to say Roger Goodell and Ted Wells, but we'll save that for another segment. That's going to do it for today's pardon. I, I didn't hear anyone mention Terrell Owens in there. Anyway, we'll email those ideas to the White House and hope to have them leaked soon. Up next, it's our Rick Austin with his Doctor Data. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. I see where International House of Pancakes is changing its name. Yeah, they are. I'm not sure why, but from now on, there is no more IHOP. Instead, it's IHOP. And for everyone that thought the B, that's IHOP was for breakfast. I did. Well, it's not. It's for burgers, as in hamburgers. The change says the name won't be permanent, but it's meant to draw attention. It's new emphasis on burgers. And Ron, I know you're an IHOP with a P guy, so am I. You in favor of this? Well, I would say this. If they can get the Talk of Fame Network talking about their name change, <laughs> then it was all worth it for IHOP, which will always yes. mean IHOP and pancakes to me. <laughs> it goes, you're from Texas where there are plenty of burger choices. Um, this is going to make you run out to IHOP and try their new menu. <laughs> the only burgers I eat are off the grill in my backyard. It's oh. been years since I've been in the I have where's the pancakes, so I'm in no rush for their burgers. Where's that invite to his backyard, Ron? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, come on, invite? Goose Man. Too hot out <laughs> here, guys. Too hot. Okay. I'm Portuguese. Oh, uh, I love the heat. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything's fair and love and war, right? So uh, I love playing some of those John Lennon mind games with you guys. So let's play another. If I hop with a P can change its name, so can you, or so can we. You can change the name of any player, coach, GM, or team, just as I hop did. For marketing purpose. So we're going to do that. And, Ron, I'm going to start with you. Where are you going to go? What name are you going to change? Well, I'm going to change Bill Belichick's name to I Spy. Maybe he does. <laughs> maybe he doesn't. Only the underworld knows for sure. <laughs> I, I'd make it official and add Super to the name of the Chargers so they'd be the Los Angeles Superchargers. That's how we always address them in this show, so why not? Ron? <laughs> I'd change uh, Le'Veon Bell's name to Johnny Paycheck and tell the Steelers, pay the man! <laughs> Goosey's taking on another Spartan there, so you want to reply? No, no, he wants to pay the man. 
<laughs> uh, guys, no one in the NFL has gone longer without a title than the Arizona Cardinals. It's now 71 years and counting. Wow. I, I want to change their name to the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> there you go. There well, you go. me, I, I, you know what? I, we, since we talked about Terrell was in the first hour, I want to change his name to the Mirage. I mean, now I see him, now you don't. I mean, he's supposed to be there, eh, except he's not. Yeah, he's not. Oh, don't get started again. Okay. On to a Johnny Manziel update. The weekly hey. Johnny Manziel update. Ron, you have a name change for Johnny Football? I do. Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. He was always big in the Yukon, and he always got his man. How about Dudley Do-Right? <laughs> Dudley Do-Right. Love him. Big chin. Oh, Atlanta plane on that chin. <laughs> Love that show. Rocket J. Squirrel. Rocket his friends. Great, great show. Anyway, well, uh, the reason I ask is Johnny Manziel played his last preseason game with Hamilton, Hamilton Tiger Cats, and he wasn't all that bad. In fact, he was pretty good. He completed, yeah, he completed 12 or 20 passes, led Hamilton to, I think, 30 straight points in the defeat of Montreal. And Ron, that would be Mike Sherman's Montreal. Mm. Um, and Johnny's now the backup going into the season. The Gooseman, um, let's be honest here. June, June Jones is there. CFL's wide open football. And Johnny Football is on a mission. How long, in your opinion, before he cracks the lineup? Very soon. There's a reason June Jones brought him to Canada, and it wasn't to sit the bench. The bigger field better suits his style than the American field. He can be the second coming of Doug Flutie with his play he makes with his arms and his legs. I'd give him maybe a month before it wow. comes his. Wow. Okay. Ghost oh, man, there is no second coming of Doug Flutie. Please. <laughs> Let's take it easy. <laughs> that would be friend of the show. Friend Doug of the Flutie. show's Doug Flutie. Boston's Doug Flutie. Well, um, I mentioned Mike Sherman and June Jones. I mean, they're both NFL head coaches. Um, so is Mark Tressman, um, who's the defending. Your friend, Mark Tressman. Champion right, Mark? head coach. Durant. Yeah, yeah. I covered Mark in San Francisco when Bill Walsh was leaning over his shoulder going, yeah, I'm not sure I'd do that. <laughs> Why don't you call that? Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Mark, uh, he, uh, he coached Justin. Montreal, the Grey Cup championships. He just coached Toronto to one. Um why the exodus of head coaches to Canada? And, and should, we, should we charge them and charge the Canadians a tariff for appointing these coaches? No, the NFL has closed the door to the head coaching opportunities of the three. But the three have not closed the door on themselves, so Canada becomes mm-hmm. a logical landing spot. You know, the CFL is a passing league, and notice that these NFL washouts that head north are all offensive coaches, not defensive coaches. It may not be the NFL, but these three will have great fun tinkering on offense up north. Goose, do you think that's why Tressman's been so successful, because he's he, he's such a student of the passing game? Yeah, and, and I think uh, Sherman and um, uh, June Jones will be the same way. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're okay. taking, it's like a graduate course in CFL football. Yeah. Um, well, Ron, you know, we've had CFL stars on this program, including Doug Flutie. You can get up off your knees, Ron. Okay, thank you very much. And Joe Theismann. You like the game? I mean, do you like the CFL game? And are there parts of it that you'd like to, let's say, incorporate into the American game of football? Yeah, I like it. I mean, I mean, they they've made it even more of a passing game, you know, because there's only three downs, of course, than there is than is here. But uh, I do like uh, certain aspects. I like the fact that you got to return uh, uh, all the punts, but but the guy right. has a cone of protection in front of him, which I sort of like before he gets killed. And my real favorite rule, uh, as uh, uh, I asked my friend Mike Sherman about this, if he knew what it was before he left, uh, you got to love the rouge. I have no idea what the hell that is, but the rouge. I, lo- I want a rouge in the football, in pro football. Rouge. That cone of protection. Did you like the cone of silence, too? Did you like did. that as well? I what, said a Sherman. Like that? What's a rouge? You said, I think my wife uses it. I said, you better dust up on those rules, my friend. <laughs> Maybe that's why they scored 30 straight points against Montreal. Hey, Goose, how about you? you? You like the CFL game? Yeah, I love the game. I grew up in Detroit watching the CFL on Canadian television across the river in Windsor, Ontario. 
And what I like is the pace and the bigger field, neither of which the NFL is ready for. Goose, are there parts of that that, that, that you would legitimately try to uh, put into the American game of football? Well, what makes the game so fun is the act and the uh, the accentuation of offensive roles, the, the motion yeah. stuff. I, I don't want to see more offense in the NFL. I'd rather see more defense. So I'd be yeah. to it. I, I'm with you. I mean, I went to one game up there in Toronto when Ricky Williams was playing there, and I was trouble following because there are people running all over the place. <laughs> what's right. what's going on? They're all in motion, you know. And and then once you understand, you go, yeah, you know what? Not a bad game, but I agree with you 100. Um, percent Yeah, let's help out the defense before we help out the Who's offense. Who's man a fan? If you a fan of the Rouge? Big fan of the Rouge. Big fan of the Rouge. There you go. Love it. Love the Rouge. Well, I'm a big fan of Dr. Dad, a.k.a. Rick Goslin, and he's here every other week for his thoughts on not the Rouge, but on football. And Gooseman, where are you going today? Don't undersell the Super Bowl champion, Philadelphia Eagles. They are a better team on paper now than they were last February when they defeated the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. That's because the Eagles survived injuries uh, in their to win their first NFL title since 1960. They lost Pro Bowl left tackle Jason Peters for the final nine games of the season. They lost their middle linebacker Jordan Hicks for the final nine games of the season. Their quarterback and MVP candidate Carson Wentz missed the final three games of the regular season. None played in the postseason. All return in 2018. The Eagles also overcame injury absences of their Pro Bowl defensive tackle Fletcher Cox, their Pro Bowl tight end Zach Ertz and guard Steve Wisniewski for two games apiece. Philadelphia also persevered despite playing the final 13 games of the season without their Pro Bowl return specialist Darren Sproles and the final 15 games without kicker Caleb Sturgis. Maybe Doug Peterson did an even better job than we initially thought in winning the NFC East, the NFC, and NFL titles. LeGarrette Blount, Philadelphia's leading rusher last year, left this offseason in free agency. But the Eagles already addressed his absence by trading for Jay Ajayi midway through last season. He'll be a 25 carry back for the Eagles this fall. Outside backer Michael Kendricks became a salary cap casualty this offseason, and did veteran tight end Brent, Brent Selleck. But Kick Hicks returns to fill the void at linebacker, and the Eagles claim the best tight end in the draft in Dallas Godard. The Eagles are loaded in their bid to repeat as Super Bowl champion, but they are lo- but are they loaded enough to become the first back-to-back Super Bowl winner since 2004? Stay tuned. Well, Gooseman, uh, with all those absent guys, do you think there's a chance that those guys will not suffer the sort of Super Bowl hangover that we've talked about in the past that seems to hurt a lot of teams because they weren't really an active part of it for, for much of the time? Do you think maybe they've been inoculated against what stops a lot of teams from repeating? I think the quarterback, Carson Wentz, will have great incentive because that was going to be his team and that was going to be his Super Bowl. I think he'll come back with fire. But, Ryan, you've been around the Patriots. It's tough to repeat. You know, right. everybody tells you how great you are, and you do the banquet circuit, and you don't come back with the same fire in your belly that that you had before you won. And the fire gets tamped down a little bit when you finally win, and it, it's tough to rekindle it after an off-season of celebration. Hey, guys, speaking of name changes, we're going to change ours to the talk of our next commercial, because that's where we're going now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame, our next commercial, Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Keeping with our best not in Canton series, we've invited a Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend John Zarnecki of Fox Sports to join us and get uh, give us his take on the best of the Rams. The L.A. Rams, the St. Louis Rams, maybe even the Cleveland Rams. 
Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, we want to know the best Ram not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Czar, uh, thanks for being here again. You're you're welcome, Ron. Good talking to you. And you too, Goose. Uh, I'm going to come out and probably shock everybody with Henry Ellard. Oh. And it's probably because I covered him almost as his entire career. And, and if you remember, the Rams back then had no quarterbacks through most of his career. I think Jim Everett, once they finally got Everett, he wasn't too bad. But he had guys like Jeff Kemp and Steve Dills. I think Steve Barkowski, Dieter Brock. Oh, that's right, Dieter Brock. That's right. Wow. And here's the thing. And here's what I'm going to say about Henry. And and Henry, for 13 straight years, led his team in, rece- in receptions, which is pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, I know the Rams didn't have a lot of great receivers, and but even when he went to Washington, he led the Redskins in, in receptions, and um, he was automatic on third downs. And the other thing, early in his career, he was a tremendous punt returner. I mean, and if you know the Rams in that era when Dickerson was there, it was all about running the football. Mm-hmm. But you had to get first downs once in a while, you know, on third and long. And Henry produced all the time, and he was the only guy they could throw it to. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's what impressed me about Henry is that they had no one else at the wideout position, and uh, everybody knew the ball was going to him, and he still caught it and got and converted into the first down. That, that's why I really like him. And the game was a lot different back then, too. I mean, the Rams, I mean, they beat the Cowboys in a playoff game just giving the ball to, to Eric all day, 24 nothing. you know. So um, I, he just really just stood out as a great player. It, to me, considering the cast around him and what was expected of him, so you guys could tell me if I'm wrong or not. No, I think that's a good call. I, Goose and I are both uh, Ellen guys. We've written about him, and his numbers right. are terrific, uh, you know, for the time the that he was playing. He's been on the show. We, I, been, I think when he retired, he, wasn't he fourth, Goose? Yeah, he was, he was I, a tough huh? What What most impressive thing for me is that 18 yards a catch. I mean, right. it was the quality of the catch, not necessarily the quantity of well, the Well, he catch. was great after the catch. That's yeah. the other thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just... Uh, you know, and he's never going to get in the Hall of Fame, I don't think. Well, here's the and frustrating part. Every franchise, it seems, has got a receiver that isn't in the Hall of Fame that he think Like the Cowboys have Drew Pearson, the Eagles have Harold Carmichael, Ford right. Niners have Billy. Everybody's got that guy. And yet right. none of these guys, Kansas has got Otis Taylor. None of these guys can get into the room to be discussed. That's right. the frustrating right. part for me. It's, it's you, you wonder, how, how do these people fall through the cracks? Right. See, for me, Henry was like, he was the only guy they did have. Yeah. When you rattle off some of the, like the Cowboys, at least the Cowboys had maybe two receivers that you could yeah. count on and be clutch or something like that. But for a long period of time, he was the only guy. Even when they had Flipper, Henry still led, uh, Flipper Anderson, Henry still led the Rams in receptions. And, so, and the Rams were a playoff team. I mean, they lost the NFC Championship game twice when Henry was there and, Made the playoffs a lot, and basically it was a running team, and they played decent defense with Frit, when Fritz Shermer was there. Well, you know, one guy I wonder about, too, who never gets uh, any love at all uh, is Dennis Harrer, who was, you know, six-time Pro Bowl player, team captain, yes. uh, you know. Uh, as you yes. pointed out, Zara, you know, they had a real grinded-out offense, and he was a key player in that. Um, yeah. Is he, did he just no, sort of disappear because of the position? Right, I think so, and I, uh, 
I like Denny Heron. He was a character and a team leader and a real tough guy. And I don't think that's a bad choice, and, and that's a great name to bring, bring up. I think the Rams had a unique line. Slater ended up getting in the Hall of Fame off of long, longevity, but my first few years at the Rams, they didn't even start for three years. Jackie didn't, you know? And uh, Irv Pankey, the, the tackle, he actually could block LT, you know? Now, some games he couldn't, but he, he blocked Dent. I mean, the Rams actually beat the Bears a couple times in the mid-'80s there when the Bears were the best defense in football. So I think that's why Dennis Nett has never made it, you know, even into the room, because there were other guys on that unit. It was a pretty good uh, offensive line for about five or six years. Old Dan Radakovich, he coached those guys, the old yeah. Steeler guy. Yeah, you man. know, it was a uh, right. too. <laughs> how do you, sorry, how, do you, how, how does Isaac Bruce... And Ellard compare in Candace's. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. There. How does Isaac Bruce and Ellard compare? Well, I mean, I think Henry was an excellent route runner, and so was Bruce. But I would say Bruce has a little bit more top end speed, you know. Uh, but I would say Henry had a little bit better hands, you know, because when he caught his opportunities. I mean, and they didn't throw the ball that much like they did when Bruce played in St. Louis, you know, with Warner. The whole offense was totally different, too. So, I mean, I would say that's the one advantage Henry had his hands. And they were both decent root runners, I think. Uh, and Bruce obviously had more top-end speed, I think. But, you know, the game was more wide open than two goose. So it's like I say top-end speed, but... Guys would be wide open in that offense every every once in a while, you know, the way the play scheme was. If somehow Henry were elected, uh, yes. would he show? Would he show up? <laughs> yeah, he definitely would show up. <laughs> he coached for a lot. I'll say one thing too about Henry, and I'm sort of, you know, he was a great guy. He got abused by the Rams front office. This was in the day when there was a free agency and. I mean, they just, like, took him to the cleaners, John Shaw did every year. And, uh, but he, he took it, and he showed up and played, you know what I mean? It's like uh, a great, a great, great guy. He coached in the league for a long time, a receiver coach for a long time. So he would definitely show up. It would mean the world to him, too, and there's no doubt about it. Yeah. How do you guys feel about that T.O. thing? Well, you know, the thing that I said, we talked about the, uh, at one point here, and one of the things I felt was I, I feel really sort of sad for him in a lot of ways. I've always felt sad for him because there's something right, going exactly. on there that, that's weird, right. you know. For sure. Uh, but the other thing that struck me uh, was uh, he's just made the greatest team that's ever been selected, and he's still right. a lousy teammate. <laughs> you know, he like he can't. I mean, he that's confirmed a- everything that was said about him. He confirmed. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know, I know. I that's a good point. You know, yeah. but I, I think there's. Whatever's going on up in his head, probably Goose knows a whole lot being around him in, in Dallas and stuff like that. Uh, you know, he's, I always liked T.O. personally one-on-one through the mm-hmm. years of covering the NFL and everything. and uh, got along with him okay, but uh, hurting himself here by not showing up because I think right. it only fuels the flames of all the old-timers, all the Hall of Famers who were reluctant to support the guy, too. You right. Know? They didn't want him in the first place, and now they don't have to deal with him, so they're happy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're probably happy in one way. I mean, whatever. 
You know? it's, it's almost an insult to the players that are in that he won't show. But I feel worse for the guys that can't get in. The guys like Eddie Metter, who have waited right. 50 years for their call. And here's a guy right. who waits three years. They put him, he says, I'm not coming. You know, yeah. I, I, again, Eddie Metter is one of my pet peeves. This guy I know, I know, I know you like that safety. guy. All, yeah. all these years later, he still holds the franchise records and intercepts and, and block right. kicks, and he can't get a sniff. Right. Hey, you know what? Process. And it's the position, Goose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've yeah. talked about it. You've talked about it in the room many a times. I think of all the how long, how many few, how few safeties are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, I covered Nolan Cromwell. He was pretty damn good for about four, four to six year period. You know, and sure, uh, there's a lot of guys. You know, at that position, and who are just overlooked. You know, because I think we look at pass rushers and corners. You know, and uh, you know, I got a, I got a soft spot for John Lynch too. But I mean, I don't think he's ever getting in. I hear, I hear what you're saying, but I think it's the position mostly just gets totally overlooked. Uh, Czar, you know, Goose has uh, had a an idea percolating for a number of years. Which I think it's a good yeah. idea, actually, which is that. Uh, First team all decade choices should be automatic semifinalists the first year they're eligible. What do you think about that? It's not a bad idea. The trouble is, you're like all the guys in the room may not agree with that. That's the thing, and the selection. This committee picks the all decade team. <laughs> I know, but I mean, like, I know, I, I know what you're like saying. I uh, when do you guys pick that? At the end of the decade? I've been a voter yeah. for all these yeah. years. I never picked an all-decade team. Open your Maybe mail. it's because I was in between decades or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> You're like a swing guy, right? right. Yeah. The, you know, the and, and here's the other thing about it. Okay, some of these all-decade teams in the past, I think they've overlooked guys, Goose. I mean, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? You know what I mean? Look how yeah. long it took uh, the Green Bay guard who's finally getting in this year, Kramer. Oh, Kramer, that's, so. that's the most absurd thing in the history of absurd things. I mean, but look how long it took. Yeah. And I yeah. tell you, it wasn't easy. Uh, Goose was in the room with yeah. me last August. It wasn't like a slam dunk that he was getting in. It just sort of happened, right. I would say, in the last 30 minutes of our conversation. You know what I mean? You know, I went in there. Well, I was just going to say, you know, if there was ever a guy who had the right to say, I ain't coming, is Jerry Kramer, and you couldn't right. keep him out of there with a shotgun. You know, I mean, right. Uh, right. It's, it's just complete, you know. I mean, you want to talk is about a guy right? who had to wait. I mean, geez. Yeah, and I don't know the history the history of everything. I mean, why did the voters 30 years ago not put them in, put them on all-decade team, put them on the, all, the 75th anniversary team? I mean, how did that happen? Well, you, you know, know, he and Willie Wood were two of those last guys, and I think they just yeah. closed the door on them and said, that's it. You know, and, and Is that what it was? They okay. kept playing, unfortunately for yeah. them. I know a lot of people say too many Packers, too many Steelers, too many Raiders, but it's one reason why those teams were great is because they had a lot of great players. Exactly. You know, that's the way I look at it, you know, personally. Czar, we've run out of time. Wish we had more. Okay. Appreciate stopping by talking to you, about their brands. Good talking Thanks, with you. Czar. See you Thanks, Czar. Yeah. Bye. Take care, guys. Yep. That was Hall of Fame voter John Zarnecki. Up next, it's Steelers Hall of Famer Joe Green. You're listening to Talking Big Time. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
Our next guest, Joe Green, was the linchpin of the Steel Curt defense that helped Pittsburgh win four Super Bowls in the 1970s. Joe was voted to the NFL's 75th anniversary team and has a bust in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's one of nine Steelers from the 70s enshrined in Canton and one of four from the Steel Curtain defense. Joe thinks that's a player or two light of Canton, and he's here with us today to talk about it. Joe Green, welcome to the show. My pleasure, Rick. Joe, I always enjoy talking about Hall of Famers, and especially uh, those with the black and gold. That's why you're here. Joe, Joe, what is your definition of a Hall of Fame player? Well, uh, in my opinion, uh, a Hall of Fame player is, is, is one that has played uh, consistently over uh, uh, a period of time, in my view, usually double-digit years, 10 years, but some uh, are exceptions, but played at the top of their game and was an important person uh, on the makeup of that uh, football team, a person that, uh, uh, for the most part, epitomizes sportsmanship, uh, preferably on and off the field, but one that played uh, played uh, the game uh, the best way he knew how to play. Uh, a Hall of Famer is, is someone that played to the highest level of their craft, uh, over a consistent period of time. Uh, Joe, when they slipped that gold jacket uh, over your arms, what did it mean to you? Because it always seems like such a moving moment for nearly every player. Oh, it really is. Uh, that's, I, I think that, that that's, uh, that's the first time that uh, you stand out alone when they're putting that jacket on you and you know that you have joined a fraternity that, uh, as, as, as Deacon would say, that you can never be cut from, you can't be traded from. Uh, it's a special, special feeling. And, and, you know, when you're up there on that podium and, and, and changing your civvy uh, jacket to that, that Hall of Fame jacket and, and you're looking at all the people that come to see this experience, uh, it's a special thing. And it's something that I can ever remember happening to me in my lifetime that that felt at that moment uh, so grand. And, and I can say at that time, that's the time that you do really feel like an individual because, well, you know that it's a team thing, but you do feel like an individual up there. Joe, are you you're saying, I hope this fits? yes 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 uh uh particularly for me because when i was measured i was uh like 40 pounds heavier (laughs) and i I made sure that uh, the times that i was going to have to uh to put that that jacket on i was going to be it was going to be able to fit me so I went on a crash diet for about three months, three or four months, and it, it fit well. <laughs> Joe, we all know your dynasty, the 70s, was a steel curtain dynasty, an assembly of one of the greatest defensive units of all time. 
yet there are more Hall of Famers from the Pittsburgh offense of the 70s than from the defense. How did that message get lost on Canton? Well, um, we on defense, we don't pass the ball, we don't run the ball, and we don't catch it. So, and, and, and you know, I, Rick, I think that um, the, the, the defensive the defensive line um, got a lot of a publicity about the front four, the steel curtain. The linebackers played a part in that for sure, but I think it was probably a little overweighted to the to the front seven group. Uh, I don't know about you know I don't know if that's right or wrong. But uh, probably so. Um, but, you know, the argument also could say that, well, Elsie Greenwood isn't there, Dwight White isn't there, and neither is Ernie Holmes. But we have two linebackers and uh, probably should have three. Yeah, that's one of the people we were wondering about, uh, if you could tell our listeners who that third linebacker is that so many of you Steelers uh, believe belongs in the Hall of Fame. That third linebacker, uh, we're talking about him as, as being the third guy, but he's really in the first. Uh, Andy Russell. Andy Russell was there when we were the Steelers. Um, you know, uh, the team that everybody could beat. And Andy suffered through some terrible years, uh, and he was so delighted and he said as much when Chuck came, before we ever won um, any Super Bowls, he was really pleased to see see uh, uh, Chuck Noel there. He saw a difference coming. And uh, the scouting changed a little bit. It changed a great deal. Um, we started to get some better players. And, you know, I joined the group with Andy every year looking at the draft, looking for help. You know, and Andy was a special, special teammate, experiencing all of the bad things that that happened with with the Steelers, and he could share with the group uh, the kinds of things that you needed to do to be successful. He was the guy that uh, that brought the word to the locker room. He. Uh, and I mean by bringing the word, um, the coaching philosophies, the teaching that uh, that that Chuck Noll and his staff uh, placed on us, and he he was able to translate and and tell us that this is these are things that's going to come come to pass, come to fruition. You need to listen to this guy, and you know over my thirteen years. Uh, I, I found out that uh, through experience, you know, you can have great coaches, but if you don't have a messenger in that locker room that's trying, that's that's carrying his message, then it's, it becomes very difficult. And Andy did that. He did that, and, and he, he wasn't. We knew he was a senior player, but uh, I mean, he could he could he could he could pal around with all of us and be one of the regulars. And Joe, I think one of the problems with his candidacy is he played on only two of your four Super Bowl teams. You know, the four defenders in the Hall of Fame, yourself, Jack Ham, <clears throat> Jack Lambert, Mel Blount, played on all four of those teams. 
So, Andy, as you said, got there before he was named a captain in 67, served in that capacity for the final 10 years of his career. What kind of guidance and leadership did he provide you, Mel, the two Jacks, and the other young defenders who arrived in the 70s to form the Steel Curtain? Every every day, every practice, uh, you know, the guy that shows up to play, the guy that pays, pays attention in the meetings, um, the guy that talks and practice. You know, one of the things that uh, Coach Noel used to tell us all the time is that you have to play your position like you know all of them, and you have to be able to communicate. Uh, and that was one thing that Andy did, and it was all new to me to hear the guy talking all the time, telling teammates what to do, where to be, uh, telling them about formations and what plays. And Andy, Andy did that, and we saw as a young group um, how important it was to plug yourself into what everybody's responsibilities was, what we were supposed to do as a team. And that that made it uh, so much easier. You know, uh, I always said that we could talk about to any one of the 11 guys that were playing on defense, you give them a hypothetical scenario about what the offense was doing on any given situation, down and distance, time in the ball game, and you ask us individually in, in separate rooms, we could probably probably come pretty close to telling you what we would do on defense, what our response, response would be. And I think that this was all about, this was Chuck, but I think Andy, Andy was able to convey that that message to, to all of us on defense. And um, I remember our first Super Bowl, uh, Andy and Ray Mansfield, the old Ranger, they were doing, uh, doing um, what do you call it, media day. They made it so much easier for us because they were up there on the podium telling jokes and talking about how it used to be when they were getting beat, beat up and how it changed. And when the when the conf when the the, uh, the event was over and the, and the reporters started to move around and go elsewhere, and Andy and uh, uh, Ray they was begging them to come back because they were still had more to tell them, and it's it's that kind of uh, approach that that kept us loose enough but serious enough that you know know that it's business. And that's, that was part of Chuck's teaching also, is that um, don't let the game spoil your fun. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. The game is supposed to be fun, but it's only fun when you win. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Andy, Andy showed us, you know, how to win, how to enjoy, how to enjoy practice, how to prepare ourselves for, for the weekend. Um, very special, very special leader. Call him Captain Andy. <laughs> well, Joe, we got about thirty seconds left, so it's a, uh, we're going to ask you a question with a hopefully a quick answer. To of course, is getting a lot of publicity now for not showing up. You talked earlier about how uh, what you feel about the Hall of Fame and what it felt to put on that jacket. If he called you for advice, what would you tell him? I was I would say to to To. Uh, uh, the, the fraternity of fraternity of players 
they don't, they all probably were fans of yours. They had nothing to do with whatever you think the, the Hall of Fame uh, as a whole has against you or anyone. And I think you need to put that in the background or get rid of it because you're missing one of the most important times of your life. You know, I don't, I don't want to compare it with you having being married and having a family, but it's a, it's a joyous day. And the guys, uh, they won't be able to welcome you there in, into the fraternity. And, and, and most of all, most of all, it's for those people that saw you before you became the great NFL star who shepherded you along the way, your family, your coaches, your friends. They want to share that with you. And it's not all the thing that you understand and that you learn when you walk up there. We all get choked up because we know it wasn't all about us. And he's missing that. Joe, we'd like to thank you for stopping by, talking about the hall. Andy Russell, little T.O. at the end there. Appreciate it, Joe. My pleasure. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks, Joe. Next up, the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're going to wrap up the show now with our closing two-minute drill. Robert, do I hear a whistle? That's the two-minute warning. There it is, Ron. Take it away. Well, Goose President Trump has asked NFL players to recommend people for pardon. What if they recommend Kaepernick? Can unemployment be pardoned? If it could, there'd be a much longer line. <laughs> Including a lot of our friends in it. Uh, NFL owners claim the majority of their fans oppose players protesting during the national anthem. Yet their own research contradicted that. How did these guys ever get rich ignoring their own research? Ron, the last person to pay any attention to research was Hillary Clinton. Ouch. Bears running back Tariq Cohen bought a new gym equipment for an elementary school ravaged by a recent tornado near his hometown. When he was called a hero, he said, just a guy. What do you call him? Someone who cares. Someone who got a break in life and wants to give a break to others. Our friend Terrell Owens, T.O., opted out of his Hall of Fame induction ceremony. What network will pay to televise his induction speech? At this point, the Comedy Channel. And will you be dialing in? <laughs> like Aaron Rodgers, I'll pass. <laughs> Very good. UFC President Dana White, personal friend of moi, says disgraced NFL pass rusher Greg Hardy deserves a second chance. You know, Hardy, how many second chances do you get? If Dana White wants to give Hardy a second chance in the UFC, it's within his power. Your friend Roger Stavak says he sees some of Troy Aikman in Dak Prescott. What do you see at Dak Prescott? I see Danny White. A non-Hall of Fame quarterback. <laughs> oh, ouch. A free agent tight end Clay Harbor injured his wrist, that, and it will require surgery, and he heard it during an episode of The Bachelorette. How does he explain that to potential NFL employers? Clearly, Harbor is better at catching passes than making passes. <laughs> You're on a roll, bro. If Zach Martin is worth $30 million guarantee with a $15 million signing bonus, what would John Hanna or Gene Upshaw have been worth today? A shade less than what Jerry Jones would pay Larry Allen in today's dollars. That's the end of the game. That's the end of our show. We appreciate you listening. We'd like to thank 
Jay Gruden, Mean Joe Green, John Zarneski, you for listening, Robert for producing, and we look forward to visiting with you again next week.